Hello, this is Raki on the Sustainable Founders Podcast. Today I have Deborah B, founder of B and Sons, a knitwear brand making jumpers and cardigans in the UK, using only natural yarns and recycled yarns where possible. Hello, Deborah. Tell me about your brand, your products, and why you believe you are a sustainable company. Hello, it's really nice to speak to you. I have a company that's called B and Sons, named after obviously me and my sons, of which I have four. And I would like to sound sustainable. And I think like every sustainable or attempting to be sustainable brand, you almost have a sort of fear that, um, to say that you're responsible and sustainable because you know that you might not be, you know, there might be something you've forgotten about or something might change in the world that makes you realize that you're not as sustainable as you thought you were. So I am as sustainable as I hope I can be. And I care very much that my biggest concern, I think, is that we have an awful lot of old jumpers stuck in the backs of drawers and just sort of hanging out that we don't wear anymore. And my feeling is that those jumpers are currently, uh, when they do get thrown away, are going to landfill or being incinerated. And I think it's a a criminal waste of perfectly good fibre that could be recycled. So during lockdown, I started knitting for a friend who wanted me to make a jumper. And I was quite good at making baby jumpers, but I'd never really made big jumpers because they take too long. So I made this jumper and because of lockdown, I could keep on picking it and doing it again. And I'm picking it because I had no pattern. So I was just making it up as I went along. And um, when I was looking for yarn and it was really hard to find yarn. And I started to think about recycled yarn and what that looked like. And it was very difficult to get hold of it. And eventually I did get hold of some recycled cashmere. And that got me thinking, where can you buy recycled cashmere sweaters? I would really like to be able to buy them, but I, I can't seem to find them apart from it very, very expensive stores, brands. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could make cashmere sweaters that were made of recycled yarn? But also, wouldn't it be totally great if you could recycle your own yarn? That would be my total dream. And I thought, well, nobody would believe you really that you could make new sweaters out of old sweaters. So I should try it out and see if it works. And I have tried it out and sometimes it doesn't work. Believe me. I'm sure you, Raki, do believe me because you've got your own brand too. So you probably know the pain. But yes, I can say now, hand on heart, that it does work, provided you know what you're doing. And so now, yes, I have got this knitwear brand. I also do jumpers that aren't recycled. There are some mohair jumpers and some merino wool jumpers. But everything that we make is natural. So everything that we make can be recycled. So even the recycled jumpers can be recycled again. So it's a circular model. And and really what we've had in the past is is this kind of a linear model where you just you just make something and then you wear it and then you throw it away. And what I'm interested in is is how you can take something from from something that's in your wardrobe and, and can you make it come back again? Because if you could magic it back into a jumper, isn't that genius? So that's really what being sons is all about. Thank you for sharing your story there, Deborah. And I think I really do sympathize. Sometimes I feel like I've gone through many titles for our brand. I've called us at Wild St. London. I've called us sustainable. Currently, I refer to us as a responsible brand. And I, I feel sometimes there's not a very definite description about what that means. And it can make me feel insecure about how do I refer to it? I don't want to mislead people. Sometimes you find actually you come under more scrutiny and attacks than these really visibly unsustainable brands and products, which I feel is so wholly unfair. But I suppose during the course of these podcasts, I suppose something that comes through is that certifications can give real confidence 
And so that is something that I'm always exploring and looking at for our kind of next stage as we progress. Talk to me about your fabrics. I understand you use some recycled fabrics. Talk to me about where you source them from. Where do they come from? How how did you find them? And what are they like? Are they when you make a jumper out of them, is it the same sort of quality or does it feel different? Well, I, I actually made a film about it because I, I thought people would be fascinated because people always say to me, what does that mean recycled? And I, I think a lot of people think that somebody somewhere, like a, maybe an elf, sits there unpicking jumpers. Although actually I have heard people does do that, but that's not how they, they make recycled cashmere. So I went to, I'm actually going to put it on LinkedIn at some point. So watch out for that if you're on LinkedIn. What they do is they get all all old sweaters and they um, separate them into wool or cashmere. They can't do anything. They can do stuff with with um, with acrylic sweaters, um, but mainly that gets used for when you get a delivery van and it's insulated with uh, you know like on the, in the, the the back of a delivery bike is insulated with that thick padding. That's quite often made of recycled acrylic, so that's a synthetic. So that's quite a useful thing to do with it if you're going to do something with it. But with wool and cashmere, because the fibres are quite long, it is possible to recycle it and make it and spin it back into a yarn. So the process goes that they separate everything into wool or cashmere. So it's 100% wool, 100% cashmere. And then when they've got that sorted out, they then sort it into colours. So they'll have any possible range of colours. They don't go, oh, just like all nearly reds there, you know, or red, garnet, red, scarlet, you know, crimson. They actually do separate it into the different shades of red. And then when they've done that, when they've got enough of a color, they then, they then take out all of the tags. They take out any trims or zips or buttons and labels. And then they put it into a shredding machine and the shredding machine will take it from huge pieces of clothing. So a normal size jumper, say into pieces of, of jumper that are maybe, I don't know, let's say 20 centimeters square. And that goes into a huge defibring machine, which is really a bit like, um, it's like a, a metal drum with pins on it that drags it apart. It tears it apart. And the reason they do that is because that way they retain the fiber. If they kept, if they kept chopping, you would end up with something that couldn't be spun. So they put it through the defibring machine and out the other end comes fluff, but it's fluff like, like fluff that you would get from a, from a sheet. It looks a bit like fleece, I suppose. And then with that, they, they do exactly what they do with, with sheep's wool. So they would, they blow it into channels. And then at some point they spin it and then they add those spin threads together and spin and spin and spin. And then they end up with, with a yarn. And then if you want a chunkier yarn, they would put what's called ends together. So if you wanted a really thick jumper, you might have say 11 ends. If you wanted quite a fine jumper, you might have two ends or three ends. And, and so what I was amazed at actually, the, where they, where they do it best in the world is in this place called Prato, which is just outside Florence. And it's kind of the recycling yarn center of the world. It's a really interesting place because they make lots of clothes there. They don't just make and um, recycle. They do lots of manufacture there for Italy. And it's quite surprising, which I'll come back to because I was expecting it to be sort of quite artisan, you know, with like people sitting on stools with spinning wheels. There's actually proper manufacturing, you know, big scale. But I mean, they do sit on the floor. So that was also quite interesting. So, so you find people in groups sitting on the floor, sorting out, is this really a hundred percent cashmere or not? And the only way to find out, and I couldn't believe my eyes on this bit, was then set fire to it. They set fire to a thread. So they'll pull a thread out and then they have a lighter and they set fire to it. And if it's, 
If it's a natural fiber, the smoke is white. And if it's a synthetic fiber, the smoke is black. But also the synthetic fiber will melt and become a hard piece of plastic. Whereas a natural fiber will just turn into fluff or just, you know, become ash. So anyway, that is the sort of, the, the, the kind of artisan bit that then runs out after that. Um, so then once they've got it into piles and it goes through that whole process, they then end up with this massive color palette of loads and loads of different colors, loads and loads of shades, a bit like a Pantone book. You know, it's sort of that many shades. And so then when somebody comes along like me and says, I would like to make something um, out of your yarn and I would like it to be coral colored. And I can say, here's my Pantone reference. I want to make this color yarn. What their, their sort of magicians then do is they will, they have this sort of separate creative lab and they will take a little bit of yellow and a little bit of pink and a little bit of orange and then they mix it together and then they, they spin that into a yarn and then they knit that and then they hand that bit of knitty stuff to you and then you compare that to your Pantone reference. I mean, usually it's the same. They've just done it straight away because they've got such a keen eye. They know how to mix that exact color. And then once you've approved that, they then go off into this massive, massive factory. And then they take the same quantities, but on a massive scale. And then they, they then knit you a, a color. So if you were a big brand and you wanted to make millions of jumpers, that's how you would do it. I, though, am only a very small brand, so I don't get the luxury of that. I choose the colors that they've already made, which I'm fine to do. You know, I think that's okay. I'm, I'm sure that when you are very big and successful, then if you want a particular shade, then that's the shade you want. But having had the conversations with these guys at the factory, they were saying, really, it's the wrong starting point, the Pantone color saying, I won't, I will only take this. I am, you know, Dior. I only want that color. I think you need to start off with some parameters, really. And if you've got a lot of, you know, I don't know, purple, then then do a purple collection. I think we've become so used to being able to go, oh, I, I could only work with, with coral. And, you know, having the luxury of being able to choose whatever colour you want in the world, I think we sort of need to calm down a bit from that. So um, that's how the process works. So currently I am having... Most of my, my fiber comes from Prato. And my dream is that one of these days I will have enough fibers to send back to Prato to be able to make my own yarn or indeed try and make my own yarn in this country, which would be totally dreamy. And I don't think that that's pie in the sky. I think that will happen, but I think it will require an awful lot of investment from business, but also it will require the government to intervene and, and make it so that it's so that, so that brands are responsible for their waste. And I think that will, that will happen eventually because I think that at the moment, the responsibility for a garment ends for the brand the minute they sell it to you. So you are then responsible for how you dispose of that garment. And I don't think that that is right. I think that the brand should be taking responsibility for their own waste and for, for our waste as well. So I think you'll find that in, France now, they've got extended, extended responsibility on that, extended producers, EPR it's called, so that they're making sure that people do, brands do actually take responsibility for, for what they're producing. You've touched on so many interesting points there. Firstly, the recycling center in Prato, I mean, it's very close to where we produce our cashmere scarves and it is like a Willy Wonka factory. Like, oh, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> totally unimaginable. I didn't realise about how they sorted the sort of 
the natural fibers from the synthetic fibers. And I didn't realize I did the setting on fire thing, but really it's incredible. And I'm always curious where they get their, where they get their recycled products from, because we hear so much of it landing or going into landfill or not quite ending up in recycling centers. And it's really wonderful to see a facility that can cope with and that is doing it the right way, which yeah. is the way that, you know, that you would imagine recycling to be. So that was pretty impressive. I think when you talk about us changing our perspective about, you know, this is the color I want from to sort of being more creative and saying, okay, this is what I want to capture. And I think it really forces us to flip our creative hats and think differently about fashion and producing. And, you know, it's like sort of perhaps an older way of doing things where you work with what you have yeah. instead of creating to, you know, this kind of crazy need that is not attainable and that is actually very harmful. So I think there is that change in sort of our mindfulness and our awareness about how we go about designing and the future of fashion in that respect too. Also, I have to say, where you talk about brands being responsible for their waste, I mean, 10 out of 10, I totally agree. I think it's appalling. And this is from every industry, you know, food food and packaging companies. Oh, if they had to be responsible for their packaging plastic waste, I think they would have found a solution by now. The fact that they can just push that expensive expense to the expensive cost to the government and to us as sort of, you know, as local citizens and say, okay, the onus is now on you to fix that problem that we've created, I think is appalling. And, you know, just like it's appalling that the onus is on the consumer, not the brand to be responsible for everything that comes from them. Just this whole way that we're set up, it, it feels like the wrong people are carrying the burden whilst the other half take away the profits. And that is, you know, a really good point. And when you see that a lot of the recycling projects or the sustainability projects are being paid for by big brands, I mean, this is controversial, but it's really questionable how much those big brands really want to do something about it. Because I can think of a number of fast fashion brands who have, have put their name to big initiatives that's all about responsibility. And yet they continue to incinerate. They continue to send their products to landfill. I don't know if you saw that. Um, there was an interesting article that was on LinkedIn recently where a Swedish newspaper, basically there's, there was one fast fashion brand that did a take back scheme. So you could take back any of the, the clothes that you bought from them. And they said that they would clean them, they would mend them, and they would then resell them. So this particular Swedish uh, journalist bought 10 items and and then took them back. And one of the items still had its labels on. It had never been worn. And they they tagged them all so that they could follow where they went. And they all ended up, uh, not all of them, but nearly all of them ended up in a sorting center in Germany. And they were then sent to Garner, I think it was. But they certainly all ended up in landfill. So this is a brand that prides itself apparently on, you know, really be getting behind the sustainability and textiles cause. And yet they're still sending stuff to landfill. And, and that's where, you know, when you and I, Raki, are saying that we really want to be careful about what we say. We don't want, we don't want to use the wrong word. Should we say we're sustainable? Should we say we're responsible? It's because those big brands have co-opted those words and made them meaningless. And you can't just keep coming up with new words, you know? It's somebody said to me the other day, oh, recycled's a bit, you know, rehashed now. Maybe you should come up with a different word. When it is recycled, that is what it is. You know, how can I just because 
somebody else is saying that their their stuff is recycled when it's not really. We are genuinely recycled. We're genuinely doing it properly. You know, the, the recycling of cashmere requires no goats. No goats were harmed in the making of this cashmere. It requires very little water. It requires very little electricity. It doesn't cause desertification in Mongolia. All of those things are really important and we're doing the right thing, but we're afraid because the council culture could any minute come in and say, well, you know, I got a bag from you and it had, you know, it had plastic in it. I I love that. Actually, I I never thought of it in that way either, that they've corrupted these words and now those of us who use them correctly feel fearful to use them. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I don't know how we claim it back. And I think that's why people keep trying to find new ways of saying it. Yeah, they, it is, it's so, so frustrating because you're like, but it is recycled. No, but it really is recycled. I've seen them making it. But I think it's, it's down to education. And yeah, I've got, I've got loads of friends who are like, oh, but you know, what is recycled and why is it so expensive? And you're like, if you knew the people sitting on the floor with the lighters sorting it into piles and then this whole Willy Walker factory, as you say, which is just amazing where it, it's so cleverly magicked into new yarn. It's incredible, but it's not cheap. And, and I think so much has happened in the last 20 years, I think even maybe a bit longer than that. So much has happened that has completely turned fashion on its head. I mean, going back a long time, when I was young, I can remember saving up to buy a pair of boots. Now, this is when I, I was at, I was back in my day. You could get a, um, a Saturday job when you were 14. So I got a Saturday job when I was 14 working in a shop. And I think I got paid £7 a day. And I wanted a pair of boots and a pair of boots cost £39. So you can do the math for me because I'm not very good. Me a number of weeks to save up for these boots. And it meant that I couldn't buy anything else. I couldn't buy any records or sweets or anything else because I was really determined to get the Freeman Hardy Winnie's boots that were leather cowboy boots. Actually, I never really wore them, which is the downside of the story. If you compare now, you know, how much do you get per day now? And, and do boots cost that much? You know, if you let's say that you get paid, I don't know, as a Saturday girl, maybe you get seven pounds an hour and then maybe you do 10 hours, let's say. So you get 70 pounds. So then maybe let's say you save up for, as I was, for eight weeks. That gives you, what's that way? 560 pounds. You never do in their right mind is going to go as a Saturday girl is going to spend £560 on a pair of boots. They might buy a pair of boots for like 40, let's say, or 50. So it doesn't add up. Back in the day when you bought something, you were paying the price for it. Whereas now somebody probably in Nicaragua or somewhere who's having to work for a pound a day, they are the people that are paying for you to get a t-shirt that costs £5. Yeah, you know, I've put that, I've put that in a really complicated way, but I don't know if it's understandable, but I actually went to Nicaragua and I think this is probably what got me going to trying to do recycling and trying to care about textiles. Years and years ago, I went to Nicaragua with Anita Roddick, who, who was going to visit a children's school that she'd set up on a dump in Managua. And the school was there to help the kids who used to go to the dump to collect bottles. And what was happening was with the money that they, they got for the bottles, they were buying glue. So that by the time they were eight or nine, these children were off their heads on glue. But also while we were there, we went to visit a, an industrial zone where they were making jeans for a supermarket in this country. And I actually went into the factory, even though there were men with machine guns, I decided it was a really good idea. I am. I'm old now and wiser to go into the factory and see what was going on. And they were virtually 
chained to their desks. I mean, they weren't, but they virtually were. They had they had a very small area. It was very repetitive work. You know, you would just be putting on a pocket and that was it. That was your job. You were the pocket person. And then you put that on. And if you didn't create 50 units in an hour or whatever, then you were in trouble. And if you wanted to go to the toilet, you were in trouble. If you, and, and there, there was no union and the, these women had children at home who were quite often sick. And it was just, it was a terrible situation and really, really morally wrong that for a pound a day, they were producing jeans that were then for sale in a supermarket for 10 pounds. Well, you can't make a pair of jeans for 10 pounds. Anyone would tell you that. You, it's not possible. Somebody somewhere will have suffered in order for you to buy a pair of jeans for £10. And we really need people to understand that and be educated better so that, so that as many young people are actually now, and m- many people, not just young people, we need to be buying secondhand. We need to be going to charity shops. We need to be sharing our clothes with each other even, just saying, listen, I've got this dress I never wear anymore. Would you want it? And, you know, lots of my friends would, would be very glad and I would be very glad to have theirs. We've just, just the whole buying of clothing culture has turned into something that is actually really sinister and really evil. And we, and, and that makes me sound like I'm trying to turn it into some kind of, you know, I don't know, some weird, weird sinister story. It is true. It is not right. This is not right. We are, it, we, it is too unfair on too many people. And we are producing shed loads of clothing that is going to just go be worn three times and then go to landfill or be incinerated. It is morally wrong. Love that you you've talked about that because a lot of people will say that sustainability is not affordable. Or, oh, it's so annoying. Why is everything that sustainable cost so much? And I think if they realise how much manual intervention it needed, the kind of process that is required in making a garment from start to end, they'd realise what a true cost is for a garment, and then they'd yeah. realise that actually this is not an unreasonable price to pay. Once when all the all the different sort of stages are done correctly. So when your <clears throat> animals are looked after well, when your um, workers are paid well, this is this is a fair price of a garment. And yes. the fact that we've been so privileged and so spoiled by exploiting other countries' poor labor laws to get yeah. cheap clothes for ourselves. And once people start realizing that, it can be really uncomfortable and they can try and justify why sustainability still shouldn't be that price. But you really can't get away from the facts. I mean, let's have a look. The UK living wage at the moment is £10.42 an hour. And if you go to a country like India, it's maybe 40 pence a day is the equivalent. And that's if they only work 35 hours per week, which is probably, you know, very generous of me because I'm sure they do a lot more than that. And that's why companies go to the Far East. That's why, you know, when they're making those labor saving, uh, cost savings, they choose to do that. Now, you produce your products in the UK as we we have cashmere socks that are produced in the UK and people just think that's really expensive. But when you look at that huge labor cost disparity, you have to explain to people that this is a fair cost for producing in the UK. Talk to me about why you produce in the UK and what those costs look like for you. And really what you say to those people who say sustainability shouldn't be priced so high. Well, what you're saying is absolutely right. And it's, I have many people contact me from China saying we could make your jumpers for less. I mean, all the time, every day, there's another Instagram message or something saying, 
then just your jumper and we could make it for much less. And you know what? They could. They could make it for a lot less. I had the same, like they would quote me a fraction of the cost of goods. But I I just choose not to because I understand that there is a cost being paid elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, I think I could even get recycled yarn from China because they're they're doing recycling there now too. But the thing is that, that... the reason I don't is, number one, I think it's really important to bring work back to the UK. So manufacturing in the UK used to be, you know, it was the pride of, of Britain that we could, we were making such amazing, um, our, our garment industry was brilliant. Now Italy's got an amazing garment industry. You know, made in Italy means something. Made in Britain used to mean something and it doesn't anymore. So I think it's important that we, we remember that. And we also remember that we have got a massive uh, workforce here that could be very well employed working in the garment industry. For example, women who want to do part-time because they've got kids coming home at three, if they could do shift work and in, in, in work in those and get paid properly, get paid a fair wage, I don't see why anyone would disagree with that. So as much as I would really like to have cheaper products to sell, I'm thinking, no, I should carry on trying to invest in, in the UK. It is part of reshoring as well, like reshoring, bringing back skills to the UK. Yeah. Um, and that's part of building our communities. And I think if we did that, we'd start to get closer to the true cost of making a garment again. We'd start to understand all the different stages and the intricacies of producing a garment. And I think the fact that everything is done so far away, away from people's eyes, they've become really detached from it. So I think the benefit of reshoring would not only be to the communities, but it would also be to our awareness of how a garment is actually made again to have appreciation for it. Well, and the other reason that I don't I don't get things made in China is because it's too far away. And so you can't check. Whereas with the factory that I work with in Mansfield, I pop in there all the time. We text each other all the time. I've had three text messages while we've been doing this. Cool. They're really nice people. I know that I know them. I know. I t- in fact, I take their waste, so they give me the waste of all of the designers that they. So I've got a massive pile of of old jumpers or bits of old jumper piling up here, which I will eventually use to make into new yarn. But um, you know, I, I can see that they are paid fairly, that they're not mistreated, that they, you know, I've been in their kitchen and had my lunch in the kitchen with them, so I know exactly what goes on there. If I if I was going to have things made in China. I wouldn't know personally that it was definitely a good factory. And I have heard horror stories about, yeah, which is, which is why it all goes wrong. Because one factory is, let's say that Marks and Spencer decide they're going to get some jumpers made in China. And then that factory gets a, a little bit, um, over, overworked. And so they think, well, we're just going to end up giving it to these people. So they subcontract it. And then that factory gets busy. So then they subcontract and it gets subcontracted and subcontracted. So in the end, even though Marks and Spencer may have the very best rules in the world for having things made and they may have got all the checks in place, what they can't do is double check to make sure that it's definitely being made in the factory that they, that they said it was being made in. So there's, there's that problem, but there's also every single part of the production is prone to somebody finding a shortcut. So I did hear this story and I don't even know if it's true, but it's so funny that it's worth telling you. There was a, a factory in China where they were making fabric out of bottles. So, you know, this pet stuff, which at one point everyone thought it was the, the what great, the great hope for everybody that we were all going to be able to just make fabric out of plastic bottles and then 
it would all be fine and that let everybody off the hook like Coca-Cola because they could just carry on making plastic bottles and we could just turn them into clothes. So this man was having trouble getting feedstock for his factory because there weren't enough plastic bottles coming his way. So the factory owner set up another factory next door to his factory that made the plastic bottles, which were then immediately turned into into clothing. It never actually got out. It never actually made it into the world as a bottle, that poor bottle. It just suddenly... So he could say hand on heart that he was using bottles to make fabric, but he actually was cheating. Yeah, that's not the first time on this podcast series I've heard that. It's just incredible. It's it's really... But you know, there are always people who are more interested in their own financial gain than saving the world. And it does, it, you know, really, the earth is on fire. You know, this is, this is the truth. This is not hyperbole. This is, this is the absolute honest truth. We have created the most appalling mess and we have to start really getting serious about what we're going to do about it. And, and it is frustrating, as you were saying earlier, Rocky, about you think, you think if I do my bit, then maybe somebody somewhere will go, okay, I believe that. I can see what you're doing. I think I trust you. Okay. I'm going to get behind you. And I do that all the time with other people. If I see a brand, good example of a brand that I think is amazing is Hyatt Jeans. I don't know if you have heard of Hyatt Jeans. I love them. I think they're brilliant. And I, I've met Dave Hyatt recently and I said to him, with your jeans, would you use recycled denim? And he was like, well, why not? What's great about him is he brought so much employment back to Cardigan in Wales. And it's a, and it's a totally brilliant story. The jeans are really expensive. I haven't got any because I did buy some, but my son stole them before I'd even tried them on. But, um, they are, you know, that's a good example of a company that's doing the right thing. And I think that we have to support each other. It's really important that we support each other as brands. But I, but I also think. The education is not getting through. And I think partly the reason for that is because everybody is suddenly responsible. Everybody is sustainable. And to actually get as a small independent brand, getting heard is really hard, which is why I was really glad to, that, you know, that you were interested. You know, that's, this makes my day that we can do something like this because if we could just get a few more people thinking about what to do. And we were talking about this earlier as well. What to do when you've got a pair of socks with a hole in? Where do you put them? And you know what? It's a real, it's a real, you know, you just, part of you is thinking, if I just put them in the bin, who's going to know? No one's going to know. I can just put them in the bin and I don't have to think about it ever again. And then that can just go off, go into landfill and that's it. And then I can just buy a new pair of socks. And it, the temptation is there to just do that because, because, you know, who's going to know? Who will know ever that you, you just put a pair of socks in the bin? And it's the same, unfortunately, it's the same with, with everything. You know, it, with, with that jumper in the back of your cupboard, I've got jumpers in the back of my cupboard. I've got a cardigan, for example, that my son wore when he was three on the beach that came down to his feet. And it was a really, it was a, you know, a short cardigan on me, but on him, it came down to his feet and the arms were hanging down and it was cold because it was the end of the day and the sun was just going down and we'd had an, an amazing day on the beach and he wore that cardigan. That cardigan now is full of holes. Can I throw that cardigan away? No, I cannot. It's got so much emotional connection for me. And the thought of putting it into one of those curbside bins that to me seem to be very cold and probably have water in them. Why would I want to put my cardigan there? I don't want to. But if somebody came along and said, give me your cardigan 
and I will make it into a new cardigan. I can take this and turn this into something that will help save the world. I would do that. I would give you that cardigan or I would give me that cardigan if I was doing that. So that's where we're up to. That's what we need. That's where we need to get to. All of the people out there who are currently carefully sorting out their kitchen waste or carefully sorting their garden waste, you need to be sorting in textile waste as well. And, and we need to, as a country, as a world, we need to think of a better way of getting rid of our textile waste because incinerating it is, is criminal really. And I'm putting it into landfill is, is purposeless. If we could actually turn it back into yarn again and make it a circular business, then it's some way. It's better than, it's better than what's going on at the moment. And you do offer this take back service on your, on your sort of jumpers and knits as well. Yeah, we do. We do. And we also do a mending service where I've got one at the moment. Somebody caught their, um, engagement ring on a jumper and it's made a really big hole. So I'm going to try and mend that for them. But, uh, it involves an awful lot of pulling all the way up from the bottom. But yes, we do. And, and actually so far, because we've only recently, you know, got going, we haven't had many, many sweaters back. I've got some sweaters that I have made during the process of, of getting a jumper right. So, you know, when you first start knitting something, it, it doesn't always go right. So there, I have created some waste, but it's better to create that waste and then recycle it rather than tucking it. I love the look, the way that you've embraced the circularity of fashion down from sort of the threads and the fibers down to the whole product. I think that really captures the kind of, it's a real halo example of what circularity is about. So well done for that. I think it's impressive and it's great to have that, to see your business, to have started that because you're going to be an example and an inspiration to somebody else who's out there thinking of starting their brand or their business. What advice would you give them? Well, don't be surprised when you get things wrong because, you know, when you're, when you're trying to do something different, you, you will do. If it, if it was just the same as everybody else had done, then you're just going to be the same as everybody else. So don't be afraid to be different and go with your gut, I would say. And don't be afraid when you get it wrong and don't be so, you know, don't be devastated when it doesn't quite work out. And I've, I have learned a lot and I'm, you know, it, and it, it's quite painful sometimes when you think, Oh God, I really missed that. But you learn from it and learning is, is good at any age. And I think I feel as though as much as it's been and continues to be a headache, it does, you know, it is a headache. It's not easy. This we, you know, you just end up with things just not going quite according to plan. I still haven't been put off. You know, I still think, yeah, I still want to do this. And I'm now working with um, a group of people who. We're looking at the feasibility of, of setting up a recycling plant in the UK. And that's really interesting because that's, you know, I've proved my point. I've shown that it's possible to make jumpers out of recycled yarn. Every time I go to a meeting with them, I wear one of my jumpers so they can see that it's, you know, still going strong. And we've definitely, we used to recycle in the UK. So there is still some expertise in the UK. There is still some machinery even in the UK. And I'd really like to think that that the amount of effort that I've gone to to try and help these guys understand what the situation is and, and involving academia is, I think, a really interesting way of doing things because they, they think differently. You know, very clever people think differently to the rest of us <laughs> and they are really brilliant people and they ask good questions. So the feasibility of setting up a recycling plant in the UK would mean we would have to break the current structure and start again. And the current structure is full, full, full of holes. 
There are so many things going through the back door or just, you know, not notice or turn a blind eye. And, and then it's just tragic that if you think of, of a, a wool fiber or a cashmere fiber, there's so much more you can do with it. You can recycle cashmere fiber four times. So it can go through the recycling process four times. If you, if you then start mixing it with virgin fiber. So let's say some of my sweaters are 25% virgin fiber mixed with recycled. All of that can be recycled again. So it's still circular, but by bringing in the virgin fiber, what you're doing is stabilizing the yarn so that it doesn't, it doesn't pill the whole time, which is then, you know, you're then creating something that will not last very long and that's pointless. So I don't see some people will disagree. Some people think that it should be 100% recycled. And I, I do see why people think that. But on the other hand, I think if we can just divert it from landfill, we, we're winning on one score. So yeah, I mean, I, I think there's lots of, there's lots of things that, that can happen that should be happening. And with this group, I think that we stand more chance of being able to break the current system and create a new one as though we were starting from scratch. I think we have to start from scratch because it's, it's a much more complicated ask than than you would think. So if we, if we try and work it through. So at the moment, what happens is you take your old clothes, you either put them in the bin, right? Landfill. You take them to the charity shop. 40% of the stuff you take to the charity shop gets sold in the shop. 60% doesn't. So 60% is either sent for recycling. Currently, 1% of clothing is recycled into a new yarn again, into something new. So upcycled into something new. The majority of the stuff that goes out the back door of the charity shop ends up in landfill or incineration, or it goes to, well, in the UK, or it goes to another country where it may or may not be recycled, but most probably be put in landfill and incineration. So as you know, Rocky, that, um, you know, the, the places that are most likely to get this stuff is Ghana. And actually Ghana have got quite a thriving way of life around recycling. So. Their whole way of life revolves around trying to recycle some clothing, resell. So if we stop sending stuff to Ghana, actually that would be really bad for them. So we can't do that. But what we should be doing is not sending them stuff that is totally useless for them. You know, you're not going to need a puffer jacket in Ghana, really. So I'm going to jump in and challenge some of that. There's a wonderful book called Consumed by an author called Asha Barber, and she talks about colonialism and fashion and when we as a western world send our secondhand garments to africa we suppress their fashion industry um and their native culture and designs so it's really not the positive thing that we might be telling ourselves it is now let's i wanted to talk a little bit about cashmere and why you've chosen to go with recycled cashmere as a fiber and not the virgin i appreciate we've talked about sort of the benefits of recycling. But in terms of the fiber quality, yeah. talk to me about why you've made the choices you have and how that affects the final product. I think really the, the whole cashmere industry started to fall over back in the 80s. And I don't know if you you remember, you probably weren't born in the 80s. Go on, tell me the truth. <laughs> but um, when you could buy a cashmere sweater on the high street, that was the end of, of, of how the cashmere industry worked. So before that, what was happening was that mainly Nepal was the biggest supplier of, of, of cashmere. And that was good because they knew how to look after goats properly. And the cashmere that they created was really high quality. 
but then I think that everybody realized that actually everybody wanted to have a cashmere jumper. So, so they decided that they were going to start. So a bit like has happened in, in the food industry with supermarkets. Once everybody can have something, then everybody, then, then all of the people who are supplying that, the demand is so high that suddenly everybody is trying to create more cashmere. So, so what ended up happening was that China started to create cashmere as well. And then because that started a price war between Nepal and China, what then happened was that, that the Nepalese farmers had to reduce the price of their cashmere. And in order to do that, they had to have more goats. So they had more goats and China had to have more goats too. So suddenly the very small piece of land that was, you know, being used to, to look after these goats that they were feeding off was suddenly that, you know, there, there was not enough plant life on that ground. And so there were the, the larger herds were eating more of on the ground and then their hooves. This sounds like I'm making it up. The hooves were breaking up the soil. And then suddenly there's no, there's no food at all for the goats and they're having to move the goats around. So exactly the same way as supermarkets have driven down the price of, of, you know, things like milk or bread. So the price of cashmere was driven down, but also the quality of cashmere was driven down too. So, so now the situation is you can buy a cashmere sweater on the high street for, I don't know, 90 pounds, which is actually not bad for a cashmere sweater. And like I remember thinking, oh, this is good. I can get a cashmere sweater for 90 pounds. The quality of that cashmere is, is compared to, Good quality cashmere is rubbish. I mean, it's just, just, it's a different world. It's not soft. It's not, it, it doesn't last. It pills really quickly. So that, that in itself doesn't really work. So, and it's built for a season, not for life. Exactly. But whereas if you looked at, I've got a jumper that I bought from NPL, which is one of the best cashmere brands there is. I bought that back in, I don't know, maybe the eighties actually. And I've still got it and it's still functioning. And, and it's a good quality and it's really soft. But if you compare the different cashmere, if you look at somebody like Laura Piana, their cashmere is astonishing. It's absolutely beautiful. I think they've got a take back service. I think they have. And what they do, and certainly, um, Gabriella Hurst does is they take back the cashmere that they've created from their customers and then they save it all up and then they, they recycle their own cashmere. So they've got the very best cashmere goats. You know, they've, they've chosen the best cashmere in the world to start with. It's hideously expensive, but when they recycle it, it still maintains that really high quality so that even their recycled stuff is much better than the stuff you get on the high street. And actually the stuff that I'm making is better than the stuff that you get on the high street. So although my Mine is more expensive than, than a cashmere jumper on the high street. Mine will last longer because those, as you say, are only designed really to last for a season. You can't wash them. They pill really badly. You know, there's a, there's a whole list of things that go wrong with them. So yes, that's what, that is what drove me to it. But as far as price is concerned, half the reason that the price of cashmere currently recycled cashmere is so expensive. It's because everything is being done in Prato. So you said you didn't know when the feedstock was from. Mainly the feedstock comes from America because American brands have to, by law, be really clear about the amount of cashmere that's in something. It doesn't, the same does not apply in the UK. So when you see on a label, and this is something else that, you know, we could talk about for hours, but when you see a label in a shop that says contains cashmere or with cashmere, what that could mean is like 2% cashmere. It doesn't mean that it is made of cashmere. Yeah, so, it's just one of my biggest frustrations is when people compare our scarves. We have a range of cashmere scarves and 
people compare the price to another cashmere scarf that will be smaller in size. It doesn't have the same cashmere content that we're 100% cashmere. And they'll compare it to something that's 30% cashmere, 70% acrylic. And I just want to rip my hair out because I think, I mean, that's going to be a hideous product. Acrylic against the skin, it's not going to feel nice. And for people to compare our prices and our quality with that, I just think we've really lost that knowledge. But of Raki, what... It's a lack of education. And yeah, I think is, yeah. if we go back 10 years, even, I don't think that, I don't think I would have known necessarily how awful synthetic fibers are. But mm-hmm. now we do know. Now we know what is wrong with synthetic fibers is that they, they shed microplastic. Microplastic is, they have now fi- found microplastics in placentas. This is really bad news. You know, we are eating microplastics, not just through the water that we drink, but through the fish that we eat. You know, the, uh, the, the, the food cycle has got microplastic in it. We should take this really seriously. We need to stop that. So, so really synthetic fibers are the devil, really. But the trouble is that, you know, where, how do you replace synthetic fibers? Because for performance clothing, like, Sports gear. It's all synthetics mainly. I mean, there's, there are some synthetics that, there are some walls that are used for sports equipment, but for sports gear, but things like bras or pants, you know, it's quite hard to get a well fitted bra if you don't have any lycra in it. So, but I, and I think that there are places where it's really important that we do have some kind of fibers that do have that performance. And, but the, the problem that has come out of fast fashion is that we have replaced cotton with um, polyester. So 60% of our clothing is now made of polyester. In general, across the board, 60% of our clothing is made of polyester. And even if we say woolen polyester, if you said that that's not included, that isn't included. This is just polyester that we we are we're wearing and it's replaced. If, if you look at all of those dresses that are on any of those fast fashion websites, you will see they're all made of polyester. It's almost impossible to find something that's made of pure cotton. You'll find a lot of cotton polyester, but polyester as well. And it's just, it's, it, every time you wash it, it sheds microplastics. Every time you wear it, it sheds microplastics. And then when you put it into landfill, it will, it will just shed more microplastics. So unless we do something significant about what we're making our clothes from, then, then we, 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 it's a bit like somebody said said to me the other day, we're, I, there's us trying to do recycled stuff, trying to save the world with, you know, trying to use natural fibers. Meanwhile, in our bath where we're trying to get cup out water to save the day, the taps are still on and it's still, you know, millions and millions of garments are being made every day of polyester or cotton polyester. I think it's this education piece about people understanding what clothes are made from, how they are made, really going back to basics. And I think bringing industry back into the UK can help in that education process. And I really hope that we can start doing more of that. And also getting people to think differently, less but better, I think is, yeah. the, is the kind of the way forward, really. It's it's funny how, because when you look at the statistics around Gen Z, as it's now known, you know, a lot of kids now are going to secondhand shops and that's absolutely great. And I, and I have taught in a few unis of fashion students. And when you speak to them about all of this, you show them the pictures of women in Ghana, um, you know, going through clothing, looking for things that they can recycle or things that can be worn. They really get it. You know, they understand that this is, you know, some of the girls that I was talking to, 
were from India and they knew this area in Ghana and they were saying, oh, we know, we know that area. And it was like, well, if you, you know, so you appreciate what's happening here. Oh, yeah, yeah, we definitely do. So that was, it was really nice that they had, I think they had, they, I don't know, they, they, they'd been there or something. Anyway, then, then you would find that they, when they're coming to the lecture and you're about to start talking, they're surrounded in Primark bags. <laughs> Which bit didn't you hear? You know, you, you connecting the dots, really. It is. It is. And, and it sort of, it partly because, you know, I'm quite old and I really care about this because I think, We've ruined the world. You know, our generation have sat back and watched fast fashion just mushroom. And, and we should be, we should really be driven to do something about it and feel, feel responsible. I do think we are responsible. I mean, I'm not personally responsible, but I do think that we all bought into this idea that yeah, it's a collective responsibility that got us here. And I think it's collective responsibility that gets us out. And, you know, every small business like ours is going to make that difference, whether it's educating, whether it's offering people alternatives. That's how we start to drive change. Yeah. Well, that's why I think working with these guys from the, from the universities is really interesting because the problem is not simply an engineering problem of how do you recycle yarn, which is where we started. It ends up being, it's a political problem. You know, the fact that some countries don't have the legislation to prevent us from sending all our shit clothes to them. And there's also the economic side of it. So if we did stop sending things to Ghana, yes, you're absolutely right. You know that we are ruining their fashion industry, but they have set up a really good recycling industry. So if we were sending the right stuff to them, stuff that could be recycled, instead of just throwing it into their rivers and throwing it into their seas, then we might actually be able to help them. So then that becomes an economic problem. But then you've also got the, 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 the behavioral problem around us constantly buying clothing. So therefore you need to talk to the, the psychology students and get them to say, okay, what would it take for us to realize that we have to stop doing this? So you've got engineering, psychology, economics, politics, you know, all areas of academia can come together and try and solve this, these problems. It's not going to take, it's not just one that's going to sort it out. We're going to need all of those people to work together. To do something that's actually, frankly, not that glamorous, <laughs> sorting through old clothing and trying to figure out what to do with it is just about the least glamorous job that I could hope for right now. But, you know, I think it's, it's, it's so important. And I think that if lots of people find out about it, they would be really keen to get involved. Well, listen, I really appreciated your time today, Deborah. I think. I feel like we've put the world to rights and it's always yeah. wonderful to speak to people who understand fashion in the way that I understand it and see its challenges, but also see its potential for what it can be, because ultimately that is a source of change and a source of hope for us all. So thank you so much for your time today. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed talking to you.